And Shabbat Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Virtual House Church. Good to see you guys. See the chat room starting to fill up. Real excited about that. Real excited about our study today. And I'm actually, uh, I just looked to see uh, how many people have been viewing the previous shows that we've done, and it looks like between six and 7,000 people have been tuning into the Virtual House Church since we started it back up again. So that's real exciting. Lots of people around the world. Um, tuning into this. So uh, for those of you who are new to the Virtual House Church, you can go to virtualhousechurch.com. And uh, I'm going to go over a few things on the front page here. Uh, I actually just updated it uh, just to give to sort of orient you uh, to what's going on here. Talked about how this show, you know, the, the studies that we started back in 2012 and went through 2018 and uh, then we took a break for a little while, and of course now we're starting it back up again. You can click on that link there to talk about the workbooks that we have. And if you don't know about that, that's uh, put the camera back on here. Uh, I have workbooks for each of the five books of Moses, so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it's laid out like this. So it's about uh, two thirds of the page is scripture, and about a third of the page is uh, open for you to take notes. And it has the portion from the Torah as well as from the prophets and the New Testament in here. So each week you know, has all that, and there's plenty of room for taking notes. And at the end of each study, uh, there's some questions that you can answer at the back of the book. The, these are just starter questions, same questions for each week's study, but helps you uh, uh, really think about what you learned. Uh, the first one is, how does this week's Torah portion relate to the half Torah and Brit Hadashah? Those are just Hebrew for half Torah being the Torah, uh, the uh, prophets portion and the Brit Hadashah, the uh, New Testament portion. So how do the three relate to each other? Uh, second question, what did you find most interesting about this week's study? And the third question, what is the general theme of this reading and how does it apply to our lives today? So these are good starter questions just to get you thinking uh, and really good to get discussion going if you've got people meeting in your home or meeting place or whatever uh, to get some small group discussion going. And then there's uh, several pages of just lined uh, just lined pages for uh, more notes. So um, this came as a result of after I did several years of virtual house, I mean regular house church with uh, Kevin and Amanda Roberts, I had notes in notepads and on napkins and stuff scribbled everywhere. I had notes all over the place. I was like, man, each year I was getting more and more. I was like, man, I wish I had one place to put it all so that I could keep track of it all. Uh, and then the idea came up, well, why don't we just make a workbook? And everybody liked the idea, so then we just published it. And you know, now you guys can get it too if you're interested. So that's the workbook. Um, there's a couple of videos right here. Uh, when you scroll down that front page, I got a little banner. Torah is the constitution of the kingdom. We talk about the coming kingdom of God. Well, the constitution, we have a constitution here, right, in the United States of America. Uh, well, the constitution of the kingdom is the Torah. And there's a short video here. I'm actually going to play these two videos for you. Uh, why study the Torah And I, is the question here. Well, because it's very important to Yahuwah. And Chuck Missler had some interesting insights on that. So we'll go ahead and play it for you us to rediscover the very things that the rabbis knew thousands of years ago. And so it's a very fascinating study. But let me just give you one example to give you a flavor of this. This is uh, Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew. Now, I want to remind you that Hebrew goes from right to left. Also, the word Torah in Hebrew is spelled with four letters. A ta, which is roughly equivalent to our T an O, a resh, a he, um, four letters. 
If you go to the first how in the book of Genesis, and uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet that happens, and you count 49 letters, you come to a vav, you count 49 more letters, and you come to a resh, which is sort of like our r, and you count 49 more letters, you come to a hey. So that is four, those four letters spelled Torah. Now I need to remind you that all languages flow towards Jerusalem. Did you know that? All nations east of Jerusalem go from right to left. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. All languages flow towards Jerusalem. I don't know what you're going to do with that piece of information. But I think it's interesting. Now, you can follow this without knowing Hebrew, probably, but you say, now Y49 was a square of seven. Okay, that's fine. That's not, that, not too surprising. But just a coincidence, of course. Or is it? Now, you could argue, well, that's just an accident of the frequency of letters and so forth. It's kind of rare, but interesting. Except what happens is when you go to the book of Exodus, you go to the first tau, count 49 letters, you get a vav. 49 letters, you get a resh. 49 letters, and you get a hey. Same thing happens. What's the probability of that? Whatever the first probability is, it's that squared. <laughs> okay? So it's very unlikely. Genesis, Exodus, you go to Leviticus, and it doesn't happen. And when it doesn't, it's almost feel a sigh of relief. Huh? But when you go to Numbers, the same thing happens backwards. You take the first hey, the first resh, the first vav, the first tau. You get Torah spelled backwards. Now that's weird. What's weird, if nothing else, I don't know how they found this out. They must have had time on their hands. You know. They didn't have computers. You, know, this was, you go to Deuteronomy, you have essentially the, the same equivalent thing happens. And now you're puzzled because you've got it forward, forward, backward, backward. You can't resist going back to Leviticus and looking at Leviticus more closely. We have 49 and the seven squared letter sequences. Torah, Torah, forward, in Genesis, Exodus. Uh, backwards in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Well, if you look at Leviticus, you discover that every seventh letter spells the unpronounceable name of God. Often rendered Jehovah or Yahweh, re-expresses uh, re, uh, uh, Adonai among the Hebrews. They won't pronounce that name, they'll use the word Lord instead. Well, now we stand back from all of this, we have the the name of God, and we suddenly realize that the Torah always points to the name of Jehovah. Now, what's the chance of that happening by accident? And by the way, if you've tried to contrive something like this and still maintain the logic in the text, that's a challenge. This is a very non-trivial thing to design if you set out to design it that way. So uh, many of us tend to regard these kinds of things in general as fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. How crazy is that? <laughs> it's like the coolest thing ever that, you know, every so many letters, it spells Torah and Genesis and Exodus properly, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's backwards, and then it's the name of God in the book of Leviticus. I mean... Wow, <laughs> that blew my mind when I first saw it. So it's like Torah, Torah, yod heh vav -Heh, and the Torah, Torah, pointing backwards towards yod heh vav -Heh. That's just awesome. Uh, I saw a video recently uh, that I guess has been, I think Zach Bauer did it back in 2012, 
uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, called Not Under the Law. And I thought it worthy of embedding on the front page here just to get people to understand what we're doing here because um, I, everybody that's on this panel, that you know, I got uh, Jake Grant is going to be joining us today as well as Juan Carlos. Uh, uh, Kevin Roberts has, uh, I guess he's got some bad internet where he's at today and he's not, he doesn't have good enough bad bandwidth to join us. But we would all agree that that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works lest any man should boast. So we are not talking about keeping the the Torah uh, for salvation. We would say that it's a result of salvation, that once you uh, have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that we, we believe that the law is written on our heart and on our mind. And if it's on your heart, then it should compel you to do it. And 1 John 2 through 5 tells you that. First John 2 talks about, hey, if you say you're in him but you don't obey the commandments, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. First John 3 defines sin as transgression of the law. I think everybody here who believes that they are a Christian or that has accepted Christ would agree that we shouldn't sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. So you are saying that you shouldn't transgress the law. Um, the opposite of that, therefore, would be to keep it. Um, and then First John 5 says... Hey, you know, this we, we always say that there's only two commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Well, okay, we know sort of what love your neighbor means, but what does it mean to love God? Well, First John 5 defines that. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Whose commandments? His, yod heh commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So uh, that's what we're about here, but um, Zach did a really good job of, of talking about that as well, so I'm going to play this for, video for you now. I keep getting questions concerning verses like Romans 6:14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. You see, many people don't understand when they learn that I and others believe that we are to still follow the commandments and the laws of the Old Testament given by God to Moses. They say, can't you read? It says right here, we are no longer under the law, Romans 6.14. What they don't understand is that Paul is speaking of no longer being under the law of sin and death, which is the punishment for breaking the law, the tutor that brings the punishment of instruction. What Paul is talking about is the curse the law brings when you don't follow it. 1 John 3.4 Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. That's what sin is. It's transgressing the law. Because many people today do not read and study the beginning of the Bible, they misunderstand Paul when he speaks of the curse of the law, or being under the law, which is a curse. He is simply quoting Moses in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 11 verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am giving you today and the curse if you disobey the commandments of the Lord your God. Basically, the people of Israel are standing before the Jordan River ready to inherit the land. But Moses does a replay of all the commandments the Father gave to their parents in the wilderness and tells them that if you do not obey the Father and His commandments, you will be cursed. If you obey Him, you will be blessed. We see this repeated again a few chapters later. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees that I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then, in verse 19, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. 
You see, Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. What he's saying is the curse for transgressing God's law is death. What Christianity fails to realize is that Jesus became that curse for us so that we could live. But that doesn't mean we now ignore the law. Look at what Paul says in the next verse. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. What Paul is asking is this. Is it okay to sin or transgress the law knowing that we won't be punished for it? We won't get the curse. Well, he says, God forbid. What is sin? Well, we already know what sin is. It's transgressing the law, 1 John 3, 4. We are saved by his grace, but the law is still to apply to our lives today. I use the following example a lot. You're driving down a long road and you accidentally blow through a red light. You didn't mean to, but you did. Or maybe you did mean to. Maybe you thought you could beat the light. However, nearby, a police officer sees you and pulls you over and issues you a ticket for failing to obey that red light. At that point, you are now under the law. The punishment of the law is going to have an effect on you and there is no escaping it. The day arrives for your appointment in traffic court. You step before the judge and admit your guilt. He sentences you to a fine and you write a check and pay that fine. Because your fine has now been paid, you are now dead to the law. The law no longer holds dominion over you. It's the punishment of the law, not the law itself. You are free to walk out of that courtroom and be on your way. However, does that mean you can continue to run red lights on your way home from traffic court? Those traffic laws were put in place to bless you if you follow them and curse you if you don't. Don't believe me? Well, try running a bunch of red lights and as you wake up in your hospital bed, let me know if you feel blessed or if you feel cursed. The Father's laws for His children were created to keep His kids close, to keep them protected and insulated from error and from the things of the world. Today, ministries and pastors have Paul so confused with being against the law, they have no idea anymore that he is in fact actually talking about the curse the law brings when you break it, and not the law itself. The Apostle Peter warned us that some of Paul's letters were hard to understand. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. When Peter mentions they who are unlearned, what are these people unlearned about? He's talking about people who haven't yet learned the foundation of the scriptures, the Torah. He finally goes on to mention that these unlearned are falling to destruction and being led away with the error of the wicked, falling from steadfastness. For more videos and teachings, visit our website at newtotorah.com. So I thought that was a really good summary of what we are about here at the Virtual House Church. Uh, we are very much in agreement with what Zach Bauer said. And by the way, he's got some great resources on his channel, New Tutora. So you can just look up, uh, look him up on YouTube. Uh, he's got some phenomenal stuff there. Um, this talks about the two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. It's a good breakdown 
of, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Those are the two commandments. They break down into the 10, and the 10 break down into the 613 so-called commandments. Uh, You hear people talking about the 613 a lot. And speaking of the 613, this is a really cool website right here. If you click on that, you want to go deeper and to understand what that's all about. Uh, give this website a second to load here. But it's a, it's a really cool interactive. See how it just all pop, boop, pops up like that? Um, so it, you have the love God commandments here and the love your uh, neighbor commandments there. And you can click on like be holy and pew, it pops up all the other commandments and the numbers, you know, 1 through 613. And you can click on, let's say, 77. What is that one? Uh, serve the Almighty with daily prayer, Exodus 23:25. So uh, that's how that website works. Really cool. Uh, so you can go through all 613 commandments and what they represent there if you're interested. And then finally, on the main page of the Virtual House Church is this map right here, Fellowship Finder. So if you are hungry to meet with others in your area face-to-face, uh, as much as COVID-19 will allow you to, (laughs) uh, your government officials and whatnot. Um, This is a really cool resource uh, that shows, this is by 119 Ministries, all of these blue pins right here represent either individuals or groups of people that are gathering to do uh, the same thing that we're doing here on the Virtual House Church. Now, many people in standard Christianity think what we're doing is a cult. And what I've found is that uh, there's actually a great line in the TV series 4400 where one of the FBI guys says, in my experience, a cult is just what the big congregation, big congregation calls the little congregation. <laughs> um, but the other thing about cults is that cults have leaders. Well, this is a leaderless movement. There's no, there's no denomination. There's no leader. You might hear things like the Hebrew Roots movement, but that's just what people are calling this for the most part. Um, this is the, the only leader in this is yod Vave. His Holy Spirit is driving this. These are people all over the world just waking up and saying, hey, wow, my Bible doesn't begin in Matthew, and guess what? Galatians is not the only book of my Bible. Ah, check that out. Uh, and by the way, we love Galatians, but you have to understand Galatians in the light of this. Now, if you live here in the United States, look at how many dots there are. You just keep zooming in, keep zooming in, and, I mean, Let's just pick a random one right here. Uh, let's see. I'll pick this one. So there's some people and their contact information, and you can uh, get a hold of them and see if it's a right fit for you, you know, if you live in that area. So um, great resource to get together with other people who may be believing the same things that you do. You know, and just keep in mind, look, no congregation is perfect. Uh, so, you know, you're always going to run into personalities and different things like that. So, you know, just take it for whatever it is, pray about it. And But anyway, some great resources for people all over the world essentially doing the same thing we're doing here. Now, um, I saw some people in the chat room that were asking about the workbooks. In the top left-hand menu here, you have a couple links. Who we are is about me and Sheila, what we believe is our statement of faith. Coming out of Babylon is a great resource with lots of videos about uh, keeping the feast and the Shabbat and how to, you know, uh, how to walk this out uh, and what it means to come out of Babylon. And in the VHA, uh, VHC store, you can click on that, click on the 
calendar for the Hebrew calendar. Uh, it, it's laid out like the Gregorian calendar, but superimposed with the, the Gregorian calendar layout is the Hebrew calendar. And when the feasts are, you can click on that for a pr free PDF you can view or download. Uh, you can buy them by the links there. We have Juan Carlos also has a calendar here you can check out. Same thing, click on that a PDF. And if you're interested in getting the workbooks, you can uh, get them through this page right here. And uh, we do have them in stock again. So if you're interested in getting a deal on all five, that's how you can do it. All right, now let's jump in here. Um, this week's study is Hukat, Numbers Week 39. And if you click on that in the main menu, it takes you to this page. Hopefully you guys have done your homework. The way we're doing Virtual House Church this time around is we're trusting that you guys have already at least read the scriptures and or have listened to uh, either the broadcast from 2013 uh, or watched the video from 14 or 17 or any time in between so that you guys are up to date about what we're doing here. Uh, I did listen to these um, earlier today, and, man, I got to tell you, I was I was just talking to uh, Jake and to Juan Carlos before we went live. I was pretty jacked up <laughs> for the 2013 broadcast. I had just busted my foot, had to have a plate and eight screws put in, uh, and then I had some problem with my upper wisdom teeth, had to get those out when they did an x-ray. They found that I had, like, some kind of cyst that was eating away my jaw uh, on the bottom there, and, like, my jaw was just hanging on by a sliver of bone. And I was like, oh, man, uh, having to face potentially going through a really trying surgery for that. Um, my hands were shaking so bad I could barely pick up a pen. People were attacking me all over the place. Uh, you know, calling me a heretic and everything for doing this stuff and blah, blah, blah. I was like, listen, guys, pray for me because, like, I'm praying every day I don't wake up in the morning. <laughs> I was, like, really jacked up back then, so praise you who I got through that. Uh, but it was kind of sobering listening to it again uh, this morning. Some great resources here. We might cover a little bit of it today, maybe, uh, from Your Living Waters. Uh, a woman named Ardell wrote these commentary. I didn't know that Ardell was a woman back then, so forgive me if Ardell, if you're listening, I uh, didn't know whether Ardell was a woman or a man. Um, some of the stuff I covered here. Notes for each week's study can be found on each page. So we got stuff about the red heifer this week and how that applies. And some interesting stuff regarding uh, magic bands and lids. And if you listen to the Quest for Truth shows that I've been doing with Zen Garcia, we actually just talked about this in this, this week's study on Thursday. So that's kind of cool that we're covering it again this week. Oh, here's the x-ray from uh, what was going on with my jaw. So lots of resources for you to check out. Og Bashan we talked about today, stuff from our kind of invasion series um, and more. So lots of good stuff for you to check out on the website. And one more thing we'll do before I bring on my other co-hosts is play the Parsha. Parsha is just Hebrew for uh, study. Uh, there's a ministry out there called Parsha in 60 seconds. So Let's go ahead and play that. Shalom and welcome to Pashan 60 Seconds. Today's portion is from Numbers 19.1.22.1. It is called Hakat, which means decree. God instructs a ritual law and sacrifice of the red heifer to create water of lustration. The cow is to be burned in its entirety and ashes were to be used in the creation of the water of lustration. Touching the corpse of any human being was unclean. After seven days, a person could become clean again. The cow water was used for cleansing. Failing to cleanse resulted in being kicked out. Miriam kicked the bucket and was buried. The people were thirsty and complained. God shows up and tells Moses to speak to the rock for water. Moses in anger yells, 
Moses, listen you rebels, shall we get water for you out of this rock? Moses nunchucks the rock twice and water comes out. Because he fails to obey God's instruction, Moses and Aaron cannot enter the promised land. Oh! Aaron goes up on a mountain and dies and everyone cries for 30 days. The king of Arad picks a fight and loses. The people complain and God lets loose serpents that kill many of the Israelites. People repent and Moses sets up a serpent on a stick that heals people when they look at it. The Amorites won't let Israel pass, pick a fight and get destroyed. King Og fights and loses as well. Israelites cross the Jordan from Jericho and that is Hakat in 60 seconds. <laughs> and nunchucks the, the rock right on. All right, so uh, let me go ahead and bring on my other co-hosts, Jake Grant and Juan Carlos. Hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, Rob. <laughs> hey, Rob. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, excited to hear some of your insights. What are your thoughts on this week's study? Jake, we'll start with you. All right. Um, this is a really interesting tour portion. Uh, it has a lot of... Uh, messianic ties uh, to Yahushua and what he did, um, specifically with the ceremony of the red heifer. So I, I know we're going to go into that a little bit. Um, just a kind of a quick overview of the Torah portion. Uh, you know, Numbers 19 deals with the ceremony of the red heifer. Um, and then we have Numbers 20 with the waters of Meribah and kind of Moses's big no-no where he basically barred himself from going into the, the promised land, uh, which also has some interesting uh, overarching themes that we can draw out of that related to salvation. Um, we have in Numbers 20, 14, the passage through Edom is refused to the children of Israel. And this is interesting um, because, you know, Edom was uh, descendants of Esau. And you see that they're like, okay, we just want to pass through your land. We don't want to touch any of your stuff. Just let us pay for what water we drink. And, of course, you know, the old family relative turned them down. And, uh, and then they move on and end up running into the Amorites. And instead of asking them to, you know, uh, instead of just passing on and going a different route, when the Amorites refuse them, that's when they decide to press on anyway with the aid of the sword. And this is where we get into some of those interesting topics, uh, like the wars uh, that Israel had with these giant nations. Because the Amorites, we find out in Amos uh, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, he, he, God basically says, yet I destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars. So, um, you know, we have a little bit of that discussion we can get into with the Israelites fighting against, uh, King Sihon and, uh, going against these giants. Numbers 20, 22, we have the death of Aaron. And, uh, this is interesting. It's the passing of the mantle to Eliezer, his son, uh, as the high, the new high priest. We have in Numbers 21.1, the bronze serpent. And this is interesting because the people looked on it to be healed. Um, later on in the times of uh, the kings, I believe, the people ended, ended up eventually worshiping this signet thing that Moses hosted up on a pole, this, uh, this uh, bronze serpent. People were worshiping it and eventually was destroyed. Um, then we have in... Numbers 21, the journey to Moab, and and then finishing up in 2121, uh, Sihon was defeated, as well as King Og, who is another Nephilim giant king. I'm sure, Rob, you're going to like to go deep on that. Um, but really, uh, my own uh, kind of interest in this particular tour portion is the uh, starting in Numbers 19, we learn a lot of 
this process of uncleanness and the purification from uncleanness, specifically related around the touching of a dead body. Um, and this is all important things in regards to uh, observance of like the second Passover, because you weren't allowed to keep first Passover if you were unclean from a dead body. And so you learn a lot of what things would make you unclean to where you would not be allowed to observe. And, and that's a big important thing that I wanted to bring out of this tour portion when we talked today is there's a difference between uncleanness and sin. And that's something that's often misconstrued about Hebraic-minded believers is, oh, you guys are doing all these Old Testament laws and, and purification rites and all this stuff. And you, you must be like the Pharisees who were who were telling people, you must wash your hands before you eat, or you're basically sinning, is, is basically uh, what the Messiah had to address. But um, there's definitely a difference between uncleanness and sin. Now, the, the reason that understanding what uncleanness is important, specifically for these people who are surrounding God's presence on earth, the holy tabernacle was in their midst, was because they could not approach a holy God in uh, their own way. They had to approach him according to what he set and, and, and set. And he, he didn't want anybody to come and defile his tabernacle. And so people would be, just be struck down by the Levites if they approached in an incorrect way. Um, of course, God himself says people are going to be cut out if they defile his tabernacle. And it gets into that in uh, chapter 19, verse 13, and chapter 19, verses 20. It's a punishment for defiling the tabernacle because when you're in this unclean state, you shouldn't be approaching God because he's told you come in a, in a clean state, come in a, in a prepared way according to these things I tell you. Don't do it on your own uh, understanding or in your own way because uh, you're going to defile my tabernacle. So that's a, a very important dichotomy that I wanted to get into today because um, that gets into Matthew chapter 15. Uh, and it also Matthew, uh, Mark chapter seven with the, the washing the hands and how Yahushua was like, you know, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, uh, but it's actual sin that defiles people. And the Pharisees had made such a big deal about this hand washing um, that they uh, were basically putting it on the level of like sin. And and Yeshua came against them very harshly against that, saying, "In vain do you worship me, teaching for tradition you know, commandments, the traditions of men." In Mark seven, so. Um, I know I'm getting a little sped up here. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, no, man, that's what that's what we want, dude. <laughs> that's right on. Exactly. So um, back into this whole process of the clean and unclean uh, aspects that are being talked about and the red heifer sacrifice, um, I had to address um, Hebrews 10, and, and I wanted to read that for people because um, a lot of people look at things and sacrifices in the Old Testament. They're like, oh, you know, all these sacrifices, forget them. You know, Jesus has come. I don't need to look at any of those anymore. But really, there's a depth and an understanding about the character of our Messiah and what he did when he actually came to be our sin sacrifice that we can learn in looking back. And so Hebrews 10 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never make those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually to make corners the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in these those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. They were doing this regularly uh, to 
cover up their sins. And for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said, I lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then he said, He, lo, I come to do the will, thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, forever sat down on the right hand of God. And, uh, and man, that's a really exciting thing because um, through these sacrifices we the the people could learn you know of this future redemption that was coming that there, it was just so deep um, the things that they were going through uh, and we can look back to those same sacrifices to see uh, what Yeshua came to do and and what he actually fulfilled as a sin sacrifice and and um, we are encouraged to be perfect in holiness and in the fear of God. That's why we don't want to approach him on our terms. We want to approach him on his terms um, with a repentant, humble heart. Uh, but also um, in 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. And so, you know, this is all tied to how we are this holy priesthood uh, which is why we should approach Yah on his terms and not ours. Because um, in Second Peter 2, it says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so, be ye have tasted the Lord is gracious, to whom coming unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but a chosen of God and precious. Ye also have lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the chief head cornerstone chief head of the corner and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed but ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people but are now a people of god which have not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy that's why we are to go after this peculiar nature, to to be a people that are set apart. And how do we become set apart? It's the Word of God that sets us apart. It shows us how in our life we can be obedient. We can be different from the nations. And uh, and I think this is all tied into um, chapter 19 of Numbers and, and looking at the whole unclean, clean, and the sacrifice for sin, um, the the red heifer that was burned outside of the the uh, the congregation there, um, all of those have 
these pictures of the Messiah and and also our remembrance of, hey, we need to remember to approach God on, on his terms and not on our own terms. Um, and so uh, I, I've been going for a little bit there, guys. Uh, if there's any point you want to jump in, uh, feel free. But uh, really, that's that's what I'm most excited about this particular Torah portion because, uh, you know, we, we learned that Moses dies in the wilderness and um, we're going to be learning that I, I think it's the next Torah portion um, that Moses uh, is gathered to his people is what the phrase is said but um, it, he, he, uh, it's in this portion with the waters of Meribah that Moses is no longer permitted to enter into the promised land imagine this leader bringing people through the wilderness for 40 years and he gets right up to the edge and God's like you made that one mistake Moses and so you're going to have to die here overlooking the promised land as all of these people that you had shepherd get to go in under Joshua's leadership but how disappointed Moses must have been because of this waters of Meribah incident and um, and this incident in waters of Meribah uh, in a way, um, it helped create this great analogy, um, uh, kind of an overarching theme that we can see in Scripture is Moses, you know, represents the law of God uh, throughout the Scripture. It's, it's a synonymous Moses and the law. You know, these are things that are often associated. And so uh, in our journey of salvation, you know, we're delivered from Egypt and and we can go into the the wilderness, as, as we're kind of working out our faith and trying to understand uh, what it is that God's done for us. But with just Moses alone, you will not get into the promised land. You have to be brought across that finish line by Yahushua, by Joshua, <clears throat> you know. And, and I think that's what's so interesting about this is it's to show that this man who spoke face to face with God himself, and, and unlike any of the other prophets who heard from dreams, Moses got to, you know, be face to face and hear from God as a man talks to another man. This guy who who God called the most humble man and and did all these amazing things through, even he was not allowed to get into the promised land um, because he 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 didn't he wasn't perfect. He failed um, at this waters of Meribah incident, and and in the same way in our faith walk. Uh, it doesn't matter how much law we keep if we forget that the Messiah is the one that brings us across that finish line. He is the one that redeems us from Egypt, from spiritual Egypt, bondage and sin. We learn about his commandments, but in the end, he's the one who brings us across that finish line. And that's that's something that a lot of people misconstrue about people who are looking into the Torah and and understanding the Hebraic, Hebraic mindsets and and uh, the commandments that seem to have fallen by the wayside in the modern church, uh, they look at people like us as, oh, you're trying to live out a works-based salvation, or you're, you're stamping on grace in some way by trying to be obedient to all these commandments that you see in the Word. But really, it's, it's the Messiah that gets us into the Promised Land and is the reason that we're doing this kind of show that we're doing today uh, that, you know, that... We're trying to learn about the character and nature of the Messiah so we can be more like him because he's the one who's going to, in the end, get us across that finish line. Um, 
And, uh, you know, there's a, there's several other things that I'd love to get into, but, I, you know, I, I'll toss it back over to you guys um, because uh, later on I, I'd love to discuss how, um, you know, the red heifer has similar things to what Yeshua did when he died on the cross and, uh, and how he was brought out of the city in the same, same way that we see this red heifer sacrifice was brought out. Um, the unique thing about this red heifer sacrifice that we learn is that it's one of the few that um, made the priests involved unclean. So that's something that stood out to me that I was maybe wondering, uh, you know, what you guys thought about it. But uh, you don't really see that with some of the other sacrifices of them actually becoming unclean just by doing what their job was. Uh, so that's something that stood out to me. Um, and uh, just, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> it's a good tour portion, man. And we can get into some of the other cool stuff, like Agabashan at the end, uh, how the Israelites fought against this guy who was a, a straight-up giant. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fantastic insights, Jake. This is why I love doing these uh, tour portions, these Bible, this is called Bible studies, in this type of format. You know, uh, we have the what I just go ahead and now refer to as the Nicolaitan model of one guy speaking at the front and everybody else listening. And you know, many times you can get a really good pastor teacher who really goes deep, and you just get fed a lot from him. But how much more can you get when you get a bunch of people together to share their insights and stuff like that? So a lot of good insights there, uh, Jake. Really good stuff. And you know, you just really do have to feel for Moses, man, because. You know, you look at all, you know, he's 120 years old at this point and all the stuff that he had to go through during that time to, you know, and you know, his, his, he had to have been on his last of the last nerves with these people, you know, after all, because it's interesting, this Torah portion jumps ahead like 38 years, like, you know, the, the first, up to this point, we've been covering like the first two years or so in the, in the in the uh, act of the Exodus, you know, from the time they left Egypt to we get to this point, you know, it covers about two years. And then all of a sudden the narrative jumps forward in time to 38 years. And I think it was last week's portion and we were talking about what were they doing during that time? Well, of course we have all the stuff related to the book of Leviticus and the feasts and all that stuff they're doing, but they may have also been doing a lot of martial arts training. (laughs) If we, uh, when we consider what uh, Judd Burton was talking about with the martial arts being, uh, taught to deal specifically with giants, because uh, we see that that's what they're going to do, you know, shortly. But um, yeah, man, after all that Moses had to put up with, and you know they're complaining, did you bring us here to kill us? Did you this? Did you that? You blah. You had to know that had to have been happening for like 38 years. They had to have been doing this, and you know they get to the we don't have any water. And they already had water come from a rock before, you know. So he's like, yeah, okay. And, but this time, because last time he said strike the rock. And the water will come. This time he says, speak to the rock. And he beats it twice. Um, well, I mean, Moses, you know, as leaders, I mean, it's true. As leaders, you're held to a higher standard. Unfortunately, <laughs> we are. You know, people who choose to be leaders and teachers, you know, you're just held to a higher standard. So, you know, it was a righteous judgment that had to be done there. It's like, you didn't obey me, bro. You know, sorry, you're not going to get to go in. And, and, you know, Moses, you don't see Moses fighting about it. You you know, I'm sure he had to have been really hurt and disappointed by it, but you don't see him causing a problem. You know, he's like, you know, of course, he probably was thinking, you know, I don't really want to go anywhere with these people anymore at this point. (laughs) Um, But as somebody else pointed out in the chat room, he did get to get into the promised land at the transfiguration. 
Um, uh, although that's interesting, though, to think about because Mount Hermon, and I'd have to go look at that because um, if I'm not mistaken, that I believe Mount Hermon is the Mount of Transfiguration, first of all. I believe Caesarea Philippi is still within the borders of the Promised Land. I'm not sure that the top of Mount Hermon is within the border. I'll have to go look at, look into that. I'm not sure that that is actually in the Promised Land. It may be right at the northern border of it. Uh, so he may still not have gotten in. I don't know. But he got a lot closer, put it that way, at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration. But not only that, he was standing with the prophet that was prophesied, capital P, that would come, that would be like unto Moses. And, you know, some people say, well, that's Joshua. Well, yes and no. It is Yahushua, you know, which is the name Joshua. Um, but it wasn't Joshua, the man that followed Moses. He was clearly a man like unto Moses, and he certainly took on the mantle of leadership after Moses was gone. But we see throughout the rest of Scripture that, you know, with other titles like the Messiah, like the Branch, you know, um, a bunch of other messianic titles, Son of Man, that are applied to this other character that is going to show up later that is a capital P prophet like unto Moses that I believe is the man that had the same name that Joshua had. Uh, Yah is salvation, Yahushua, Yahushua, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. So uh, lots of cool stuff. Excited to hear what Juan Carlos has to say. Juan Carlos, what are your insights for this week's study? Yeah, I think, uh, Jake, this is really nice to to see your passion for the word. Actually, you did a tremendous and fantastic summary of the story portion. I think uh, I totally agree with what you said. And the, 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 the good thing of this portion is that the everything, every single thing in this portion is pointing to the Mashiach. We are talking about the rock. We are talking about the, the messenger on the desert. This is one of the chapter of this portion. And everything is pointing to him, also the red heifer. Uh, you know, one, one thing that uh, caught my attention that uh, in this whole process is we can see clearly the plan of salvation. Mm -hmm. So so we see how was the, was the process that in order to receive forgiveness, in order to be cleansed for the uh, and cleansing of, the, of our bodies. And actually, I also saw an important connection to the, what's going to be the redemption of the, of the full creation. You know, the, the full creation was the, somehow defiled because of the death that was introduced on the on the creation. In the first man was Adam. And we see that the, the final uh, cleansing of the full creation is going to be done by a pure man. And that pure man came once and will come a second time in order to bring this cleansing. First, he came in order to offer himself for the cleansing for the people and also for the entire world. And who will come a second time in order to cleanse the entire earth. Uh, and after that cleansing, again, Yahuwah Elohim will, with the new Jerusalem, he will come and he will live and dwell in the earth. So so there are so, so many, many interesting, interesting connections that uh, is so amazing. You know, the, in the bottom line, I think, uh, the connection to Mashiach, to Yahushua, is one of the important things that I saw in this in this portion. And you know, so, something that caught uh, to my attention also with the Red Heifer is about, uh, you know, in the whole process that we read in, in Numbers, Bemidbar chapter 19, uh, it's talking about the ashes of the Red Heifer. Uh, but uh, and at the beginning, it's talking about the water. But it doesn't say anything uh, about uh, how this water and the ashes are, are, are connected together. 
and, and we we see this connection and it's, it's amazing i think it's uh, it's in the verse it's in the verse 17 of numbers uh, chapter 19 and it says that it uh, needs to be used with running water when we say this uh, in in hebrew running waters is uh, is pronounced mayim hayim is basically living waters and there is something that's so amazing that is written in John uh, chapter 7. And I want to read to you for you guys. It's in John Yahuhanan chapter 7, verse 37 and 39. And this was during the Feast of Sukkot. And it was in the last, uh, last day of Sukkot, it's in the eighth great day, that it says the following. And on the last day, the great day of the festival, Yahushua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me, and let him who believes in me drink. As the scripture said, out of his innermost shall flow rivers of living waters. Mayim Chaim. And this is he said concerning the Ruach, the Spirit, which those believing in him were about to receive, for the Ruach HaKodesh was not yet given. So, so we see here Yahushua, connecting the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh with living waters. And we see in the red heifer, the full process of the red heifer, that living waters were needed in order to create this water for purification. Mm. So we see Yahushua uh, fulfilling the red heifer sacrifice, and also through Yahushua we receive the water, the living water, that is making us clean for Yahuwah and for his kingdom. So, so, you know, in the bottom line, this is so amazing how through Yahushua, everything is fulfilled. Uh, how the Torah of Yahuwah is connected uh, for us in this time in order to work, uh, walk in his way, in order to understand how to live this life, how to live for Yahuwah, and how by taking the hand of Yahushua, we are connected to all of this that we are learning, learning during, during this virtual house church. Uh, you know, Jake also was mentioning about the uh, Edom, and I, and I see a, a, a great and great connection about the second exodus. Uh, you know, uh, Israel tried to go through Edom, and Edom refused to, to go for them to go through their land. And we see in Yeshayahu, Isaiah, and let me look this for you. This is in uh, Yeshayahu, Isaiah 63, chapter 1. And 19 and it says the following you know that that's the amazing thing of studying the word of Yehovah because we see all this connection and we see what's the plan that is actually is for us in the is this last days it says the following who is this coming from Edom with garments of glowing colors mm -hmm. from Mosra who is robed in splendor, striving forward in greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is there red on your raiment and your garments like one who threads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. And I trod them down in my displeasure, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their blood, uh, their blood is sprinkled upon my garment, and I have defiled men defiled all my raiment. So, so, and we read all this chapter in context, we see that this is everything speaking about our Mashiach, about Yahushua, and it's speaking in a context of the last days 
and is saying, who is this one that is coming from Edom? So, so we see, and we were speaking in the in the previous sessions of the Virtual Health Church in the last few weeks, how uh, everything that we are reading in this in Bemidbar in Numbers hey, in the last few weeks, how how this is so much connected to the second great exodus, to the days that we are living today, what's going to happen, and most probably that uh, the, 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 the story of Israel in the desert that we see and we are reading in the scripture, we are living it, we are going to live it in our own life, in our own experience. And maybe the same experiences that they went through the desert, maybe it's going to be exactly the same thing that we are going to live in our present days. So, and we see that Yahushua is the one coming from Edom. In the same way that Yeh was saying, it was Yahushua ben Nun, a foreshadow of Mashiach, taking the people of Yahuwah in order for them to inherit the land. It's going to be in this case, Yahushua bringing us from Edom. In the past, maybe they were not able to go through Edom. It seems that in this time, we're going to be able to go through, to go through Edom, and we're going to inherit the land by the hand for a different man, a different Yahushua. The son of Elohim. Yeah, fantastic. You know, it was as you're talking, Juan. You're making me think that, you know, because uh, the Jews they had a, a concept of Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David, like, and they didn't know if it was two different characters or one or whatever. And the whole idea of Messiah ben Joseph was the suffering servant that we read about, like in Isaiah 53. You know, uh, and and all you have to do to figure out what the parallels are is draw, you know, I talked about this in other virtual house church uh, sessions where just grab a notepad, draw a line down the center of the page and write Joseph on the left and Yeshua or Jesus on the right. And then look at the life of Joseph and all the things that he had to go through. Uh, and think of the parallels. Think of the parallels in the life of Joseph and the, the parallels in the life of, of Yeshua, Jesus. And the first time I ever did it without ever even really giving it much thought, I was able to come up with at least 25 parallels just off the top of my head. And when we did it in a group, you know, many of us had the same 25, but the others had, you know, added things that I hadn't thought of and vice versa. And it had to have been close to 50, 50 parallels. And so it was clear that when Yeshua came the first time, he came as the suffering servant. And another way of looking at that as the sacrifice. And when we go through the book of Leviticus and we see all the various sacrificial rituals and stuff, and even some of the stuff that we just saw here in this week's Torah portion and relate that to what Yeshua did and being led outside the camp and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, that we see that he was the first time around coming to fulfill the sacrifice system where he was going to uh, pay the ultimate price for our sins, you know, and be that sacrifice. But when he comes next time, he's coming as Messiah ben David, uh, and I think, as you pointed, as both of you guys pointed out, he's coming in the likeness of, you know, as Yahushua, he's coming in the likeness of the Yahushua that we see in Numbers 19 and going into the book of Joshua, that he's coming in as a warrior, you know, uh, a conqueror. Uh, he's going to go in a fighting conqueror uh, that will lead his people into the land, uh, and then he, be, he gets set up as king. So then we have Messiah ben David. And I also think it's interesting that when the uh, religious leaders came to John the Baptist uh, and they're asking him, are you the prophet, capital P? And he's like, no. And he's like, are you the Messiah? No. Uh, that says to me that they had a concept of possibly two different beings or maybe a confusion because they asked him if he was the capital P prophet, 
that was to come that was like unto Moses. So that shows a New Testament concept that they understood that the Joshua of the of the Torah was not the fulfillment of the capital P prophet. Because here we are in the first century and they're asking him, John the Baptist this. Uh, so they have this concept of a capital B capital P prophet like unto Moses and Messiah because they asked him if he was both, you know, one or the other. And he's like, no, no. Uh, and he says, you know, there's one that's coming greater than me um, that you know, ultimately, we, we do find out he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the prophet like unto Moses, and he's the Messiah. He's he's all of these things. And that's what made me realize, you know, going to an end times context where we see a false prophet and an antichrist. Yeah, like, you ever wonder, like, why there's two? Like, why isn't there just an anti-Jesus, anti-Yeshua? Right? There's a false prophet and an antichrist. And I think it that, that goes back to this whole discussion here and some of the confusion that they had. And it's my opinion, and it's only been an opinion that I've come to as of late. I'm not holding it to it as dogma. It's just an opinion, a thought, if you will, is that if you look at what the prophet does, the false prophet, he's really acting more like Jesus of the New Testament. You know, he's doing signs, wonders, and miracles and stuff like that. And he's pointing to somebody else. You know, he's, he's, he's always pointing to the, the Antichrist. And it's almost like the Antichrist is acting more like an anti-Yahuwah, you know, uh, when you look at what he does. So the antithesis. So I don't know. These are just some of the thoughts. That uh, I, go ahead. It's also a parallel to Moses and Aaron, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, kind of like a reverse uh, mm-hmm. of, of that because Moses, a lot of people, when they watch all the Moses movies that Hollywood's put out, Moses is the singular figure and you got Aaron in the background, right? But the scriptural explanation is actually that it was Aaron going out putting the staff for Moses and and doing all the speaking for Moses and so there was a much tighter knit uh, relationship there and I think that that could be you know one of the kind of the twisted versions of how there's a false prophet and antichrist Mm -hmm. yeah good thoughts actually actually last week if you remember guys I was sharing some information with you about the Yahushua being the going hell and so on you know, but part of the, the of the study that I have been doing on that is that uh, Jewish people, as of now, they are waiting for two roles. They are still uh, believing in two roles. One is the king, and the other one is the Kohen, the Melech and the Kohen. Mm-hmm. So, so this counterfeit movement uh, that is coming on the end times, basically they are going to be deceived because they are going to see the two roles. One is the king, and the other one is the prophet Kohen. And we know that all the, the, all these two roles were unified in just one person, in the person of Yahushua Hamashiach, the Kohen Hadol, the great, the, the high priest. So, so I totally agree with you, Rob. This is basically these two people that we will see in the end times is basically somehow connected to, to, to what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this you know, it's every year. I mean, here we are. For us, this is my tenth year going through this. I'm still like getting stuff out. It's like every time, it never grows old. I mean, you think, oh boy, we gotta go through the Torah again. You know, we just did that last year. <laughs> well, no, you're just gonna keep getting more revelation, more and more. You know, as you go along. I know, Jake, you said you had more you wanted to share, so uh, go for it. Yeah, one last thing it made me think of uh, talking about kind of the Antichrist false prophet is, it's a uh, Yah put in the scriptures the principle of witnesses, right? Uh, it's two or three, you know, witnesses to justify a matter, and they're basically their own witnesses. You know, the Antichrist and false prophet are kind of bouncing back on each other. So maybe 
maybe that's something to it because you know Satan has to kind of follow the the, the rules uh, you know to the extent that God makes them and so um, you know I think I wonder if that's they're kind of conf- confirming themselves even though it's all false you know mm-hmm. um, let me talk let me look here uh, so I wanted to bring out how um, you know, we see in Numbers 19 the talk about the red heifer and kind of the process of that and how the priests actually had to go and do a, a washing, a mikvah, after they were involved in it to kind of uh, clean themselves um, from involvement in the sacrifice. And I thought that was really interesting because this is one of the few sacrifices we find in the Torah that they they are made unclean by being involved in it, which was just interesting. Um but uh, something I wanted to bring out about uh, the red heifer and tie it to some New Testament concepts with Yeshua is in Hebrews 13, um, we see here in, not, in Numbers 19 where the red heifer has to be brought outside of the congregation and burned. Um, but we also see uh, in Hebrews 13, it 11 through 12, a very interesting parallel that the writer of Hebrews is drawing for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Mm-hmm. So he's like f- doing all these little aspects of it, um, even being put on the cross outside of the, of the gate. Um, which just ties into this red heifer sacrifice. Um, another interesting thing um, I wanted to point out was this uh, process that God asked the priests to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves of uncleanness, and the way they did that was through a mikvah. And, of course, we had in the New Testament, John the Baptist was teaching a mikvah unto repentance, a baptism unto repentance. Uh, but then we have Yeshua come, and in Matthew chapter... Uh, what, what is this chapter? Matthew chapter 3. Um, we have Jesus comes from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answered, said unto him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So Jesus himself went and, and did this process of a mikvah, and then we have his ministry get kick-started um, on the back end of that. And, and I wonder if it's tied to this concept of uh, the priests were, were preparing themselves for duty, and the priests were sanctifying themselves through these mikvahs, and Yeshua, um, he went down and he did this cleansing process, even though he was sinless. He did this cleansing process and then prepared to start his ministry. And I think um, that's just another way that Yeshua is, you know, keeping these uh, these commandments and, and these things in Scripture that we see talked about related to the priesthood, related to um, uh, approaching God correctly and and re- report uh, regarding the priesthood and their service uh, with the sacrifices. So those are two things. Um I wanted to point out that directly tied to uh, this tour portion in Numbers and the Red Heifer sacrifice, um, I saw something down here. Some Somebody made a comment. Sammy Porter uh, said, always thought that, um, in referring to Moses dying uh, without going into the promised land, he said, I always thought this happened to Moses because 
Yah knew what the people would have been that the people would have been worshiping Moses like the serpent rod, hmm. and that we can't sit on our laurels but obey day by day. Uh, so that was an interesting comment. Like if Moses had actually been the one to bring the people into the promised land, we would have lost that beautiful picture of it was Yahushua that you know delivered them in. Um, and so I just thought that was interesting. Um, and I wanted to bring out this question and see what you guys thought. Somebody, uh, Larry, uh, asked the question, do y'all think the red heifer is the bride like Yeshua is the lamb? Does she represent also the souls under the altar and those of us still waiting that fate if she represents the body? So I, I thought that was an interesting question. Um, uh, what would you guys think? Do you want me to repeat that? Yeah, could you repeat that again? Yeah, so uh, Larry asked, do y'all think the red heifer is the bride, like Yeshua is the lamb? Does she represent also the souls under the altar and those of us still waiting that fate if she represents the body? So um, I don't know uh, what you guys think uh, on that, but uh, somebody <clears throat> asked that question. <clears throat> no, I, I don't think so, because, I mean, the purpose of the red heifer is to deal with uh, death. Um. I mean, because you got Miriam dying, right? And, of course, the prophecy that was given at the beginning of this was that this whole generation that came out from the Exodus was going to die. So, you know, flash forward, 38, you get the little super comes on the screen, 38 years later. <laughs> People are dying everywhere, you know. And so, you know, as to your point, Jake, in the beginning, you know, the issue of sin versus uncleanliness, um, we got to think also in terms of uh, hygiene. You know, a lot of the things that were the, the various laws that that were imposed were simply hygienic to protect people from sickness and disease and you know problems. You know, dealing. You know, you, I mean, just put yourself in this situation. You're you're in the wilderness with people. They don't have the the modern amenities that we have. You know, uh, you know, running water, showers, and you know, soap and you know, all kinds of stuff that we. Well, maybe they did have the ability to create soap, but anyway, you get the point. I mean, they're living out. They're camping. So uh, many of the regulations were there simply to help people to stay healthy, you know, and now we got dead bodies everywhere. And, and if, they, if it's true that there was with the mixed rabble that came out during the exodus, it's true that they had about 2 million people that came out at the exodus. You know, what are they at now? You know, 38 years later, how many people? And that whole generation that came out at the exodus are dying off. You know, so you got dead people everywhere, you know. Uh, and decaying and, you know, all everything that goes along with death. So, you know, this appears to be the ritual to deal with all that death, you know, in my opinion. It's interesting that they're yeah. dropping this clean cleanest thing about dead bodies after Miriam died. Almost right. like they're like, hey, hey, guys, let's get ready because if it's Passover season and somebody you love or care about dies, you need to know what, you know, what that does and, and how you need to proceed. Well, and the fact that's that, a good connection, Jake. Actually, actually, what the, the the next portion for next week also there are more dead, and we will see the connection with that as well. But uh, but I, I agree with you, Rob. Actually, there are a few verses that I wanted to to share with you, and one is in Hebrews, chapter nineteen, verse thirteen and fourteen. It says the following: For in the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the defiled, set sets apart for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of the Messiah, who through the everlasting Spirit offered Himself unblemished to Elohim, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living Elohim? 
So, so we see here that the red heifer is pointing and is related to Yahushua. So, so I think it's a picture of Yahushua. And the same, the same way we read in the book of Titus, in the chapter two, verse fourteen, it says the following, speaking about Yahushua, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people, his own possession, ardent for good works. So, so we see that the whole process of cleansing. In this case, for the people, is with the red heifer for a specific type of defilement. It's about the, a corpse, a human being, a dead human being. So, so we see that the the, the one that is, is cleansing us is Yahushua. So, red, red heifer answering the question, uh, Jake, is my belief is pointing to to Yahushua himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, in fact, if you go back to the virtual house church show notes uh, for week thirty nine, uh, we covered that in in the previous studies quite a bit it looks like uh and how he was let out and everything like that and in the uh, oh this is the magic bands and the chords and all that i want to get to that too but um i think it was in the i may have actually read the same commentary twice um in the i know in the 2014 commentary i did and i think i might have read the same one in the 2013 uh the ardell commentary uh from 2008 uh, she wrote commentaries for 2008 and 2009. Both of them are really good. Um, if you go through, if you really want to go into a real in-depth study, but uh, related to Yeshua being the red heifer, I'll just read uh, from the 2008 commentary, uh, just this one portion, because I did read the whole thing in the previous broadcast. But uh, she says, let's continue with the symbolism. And Baminbar is the Hebrew for numbers. Numbers 19, 2 says, this is the ordinance of the law which Yahuwah has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. Without blemish, Yeshua was without sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Yah in him. Numbers 19.3 you shall have you shall give it to Eleazar the priest that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him the priest took Yeshua out of the city gates mark 15:1 immediately in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and they bound Yeshua led him away and delivered him to Pilate Yeshua was crucified outside of the camp hebrews 13:12 therefore Yeshua also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate Numbers 19.6 And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire burning the heifer. Cedar wood. Most likely the horizontal beam that Yeshua was nailed to was cedar wood. This beam may have been attached to a fig tree. I've not heard that before. I thought this was an interesting insight though. Conceivably the same kind of tree that Adam and Eve ate from and also took leaves from to cover their sins. Galatians 3.13 Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Hyssop. Also, and we see that, you know, it's referred to him being crucified on a tree. Well, we also say he was crucified on a cross. So, you know, that's why some people speculate that he carried a horizontal beam out, and they depict that like in the, the movie Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, they show him carrying just the horizontal beam, whereas in the Passion of the Christ, they show him carrying a full cross. Uh, so I'm of the opinion also that he carried the horizontal beam and that that was raised up and attached to uh, whatever trees were handy. Um, let's see, hyssop, also used to sprinkle the blood around the doorposts in Egypt and 
in the purification process of the leper uh, in Numbers 14, 49, uh, which is interesting. That That's the cleansing with the bird, and you have to tie the bird to uh, the sticks and the hyssop branches and all that stuff. And we were talking about that in our home church fellowship, uh, how well, if you were to tie a bird up like that, it would look like a bird on a cross. So uh, kind of interesting. Um, John 19... 29. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it up to his mouth. So when Yeshua had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up this, his spirit. Psalm 51, 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Scarlet thread, literally scarlet worm. In Psalm 22, a very messianic psalm, Yeshua, through David, calls himself a worm. This worm must sacrifice itself to provide the scarlet color. Yeshua compares himself to this lowly sacrifice as he took the scarlet sin of mankind upon himself. Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now and let us reason together, says Yehoah. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Matthew twenty seven twenty seven. Then the soldiers of the governor took Yeshua into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And Ardell goes on with a lot more. But uh, as we've all been pointing out here, there is just so many um, things pointing to Messiah all throughout the Torah that you know it helps you to understand why then on the road to Emmaus, uh, Yeshua was walking with the two men that didn't recognize him, and it says he began with Moses to tell them who he was. And we see that Paul's doing the same thing in a rented house later on uh, in, in the last chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, he is beginning with Moses to tell people who Yeshua was. So, you know, I would have loved to have heard those conversations so that we can, you know, we're in some sense speculating and in, in looking at these things and drawing parallels, but Yeshua himself began with Moses and Paul also, who was a Torah scholar. So the, I wish somebody would have written it down for us so we would have all the absolute solid connections. But I think we're making some very reasonable connections here, uh, albeit, albeit perhaps speculation. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it's just, it's just exciting. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Any other thoughts? Uh, I wanted to touch one more time on the, the whole... Uh, clean versus un- unclean and, and sin versus unclean um, because I think that's something that is really uh, misunderstood um, and a lot of people look at a lot of those scriptures that talk about the process of being clean and unclean and things that make you that way and they're just like well I don't even want to deal with that that sounds like some crazy stuff um, first of all you know there's a benefit to obedience to the word of God health-wise. He's the grand physician. He made all of our bodies, so he knows what's best for us. So, you know, in terms of, of you know, defining foods and stuff as clean or unclean, that makes sense. But um, I wanted to address something that the Pharisees were doing in the time of Jesus that uh, some people might have heard of, of in Mark 7 uh, and how they addressed Jesus and the disciples. And in Mark chapter 7, they basically said, Now then the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining crouches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Um, so, of course, uh, oops. So, of course, some of these things, you know, the washing of pots, you know, you find that in the Torah in regards to, um, you know, cleanliness and, and keeping uh, sickness and, and disease outside of the, the people's camp. Um, but here you see Yeshua turning against these Pharisees and their hard hitting on the hand washing. And, uh, and you see him kind of challenging that. Um, and he says in verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, where whoever reviles the father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit them to do anything for this father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and many such things you do. And I find it interesting that this very thing that uh, Jesus is challenging uh, the Pharisees on is, is what has been placed onto the text and used as a justification to um, uh, disobey certain commandments. For example, it's often this Mark 7 and Matthew chapter 15 um, exchange that people use to justify uh, eating anything they want. But we see that the context here is addressing these Pharisees uh, that are putting all these different burdens on the people regarding clean and unclean. Uh, but the question is, is what is truly sin? What do we need to draw out of this exchange? Um, and what can we look at in the Torah portions and the, in the in Numbers and Leviticus that talk about these things that make you clean or unclean or the things that are clean or unclean? Um, that we're told not to consume. What's the difference? What's sin? And and I think it's really important to break that down for people because we have to understand that there are many traditions today uh, through our doctrine, through our uh, church's uh, denominational creeds that can justify sinning because of commandments and traditions of men. For example, uh, there are uh, traditions uh, that would justify no longer keeping the Sabbath day. Uh, and yet we find throughout Scripture that breaking the Sabbath uh, or not observing it um, and, and you know, going out and working on purpose is actually a, a terrible sin in God's eyes throughout Scripture. And, and it's not just that. Um, in the context here, we have uh, the hand-washing, but we have many church doctrines and, and uh, theologians who have interpreted into this, and and there's actually a place in this exchange where they inserted in brackets, thus declaring all foods clean, which was never in the text. Therefore, justifying breaking a commandment of God, which is, uh, you know, do not eat this, this, and this. Um, and they take this exchange out of context in regards to clean and unclean, and they use it uh, to justify actually doing something that's defined as sin. So... Um, through all of this, what's the bottom line? 
because I know I'm rambling now, <laughs> is there is a difference between clean and unclean, and and that is separate from what is sin. It's not a sin to be unclean, mm-hmm. but it is a sin to approach God's tabernacle, as we see in Numbers chapter 19, in an unclean manner, in a way that he did not prescribe. And that's why these things are important. Um, I feel like many people in the church today, because we don't have an understanding of of the holiness of God, and we've kind of had this lack, you know, we've we've kind of cooled him off to just a cool guy who gives us nice things. And hopefully we don't have that mindset, but it's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. And the reason uh, I, I'm kind of concerned, because if we are going towards a greater exodus or a time where the church is brought into the wilderness and, and uh, you know, if we look at the people in Israel and their example during their time in the wilderness, uh, if they approached the tabernacle in an unright fashion, in an unclean manner, they were, the, the Levites were told to cut them down. Or if they presented a, a strange fire offering as, as the sons of Aaron did, uh, they got, you know, offed. You know, it's, it's, we got to be very careful to approach a, our holy God in the manner that he prescribes. And that's why this clean and unclean thing is, is a, sometimes a misconstrued topic. Sometimes it's misunderstood. Sometimes it's used to justify actually doing something that's defined as a commandment or breaking a commandment. But um, I think this tour portion and, and how much it explains clean and unclean and they need to be prepared, you know, wash themselves before they can go back to the tabernacle, um, it really brings out um, in my mind how how people could look at those things in the Torah and in, in the Old Testament and be like, oh, man, this is complicated. You know, we have modern practices of, of things that, you know, we can just forget all that. But if we are brought to this uh, time where we we can't depend on the infrastructure of man anymore and we have to live in a camp, you know, that's when understanding this these commandments and these things about the clean and unclean could be important um, because it could save our lives. It could keep us um, from approaching that burning pillar of fire or, you know, whatever in an unright manner. Um and so I just wanted to kind of point that out and and the difference between unclean and sin. Yeah, and that's it's an important uh, point, Jake. And sorry, Rob, to interrupt. Uh, actually, actually, the connection you made to the to the tabernacle, I think that's the most important point of the story portion in, in in the chapter nineteen. And actually, actually, we know throughout the, the entire scripture, especially in the book of uh, Revelation, that uh, Yahuwah, the tabernacle of Yahuwah, won't dwell among uh, an unclean place. So, so the whole air needs to go through a purification process. And there was, uh, you know, the, 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 the Torah and the scripture teaches about two types of purification. One is through water and the other one is through fire. And we know that, that already, already the creation went through the purification of water through Noah, Noah's flood. And now will come a new purification through fire. And, and the, the important connection that I see there that uh, for me was uh, amazing because it's part also connected to this uh, red heifer, uh, heifer process is that death and Sheol will, set, will be sent to the lake of fire after the, the final judgment. So death 
is going to be completely completely disappear and the air will go through a purification and after this purification the tabernacle of yahuwah the new jerusalem will descend on the earth and he he will inhabit here on the earth after everything is purified so so all this all this thing that you were sharing about the being clean being unclean is so important also thinking in the whole plan of salvation and how yahuwah is planning to bring everything to the very beginning how was in eden because in eden he was uh, living with adam and eve and walking through the garden and so on he wants to do exactly the same but in order to do that death means to disappear and death is going to disappear because now yahushua through his sacrifice being part of this red heifer representing the the, the red heifer now he has the death in his hand so, so at the end, everything is going to be purified through a clean person. It is exactly as we, we, we read in, the, in this portion. And that clean person that was coming in the third day and in the seventh day, we know who, who the, the person is. Is the only clean person and pure person that we, we have seen and we, we know through history. And this is Yahushua HaMashiach. So, so everything is pointing out to the tabernacle and how Yahuwah wants to purify everything again in order to live along, uh, among these people and among his creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. Uh, and I'm glad that you really talked about that at some length there, Jake, because people do need to understand the difference between unclean and sin. And, you know, uh, yes, sin can be unclean, but unclean is not necessarily sin. Um, I mean, just giving birth can make a woman unclean or uh, having her period can make her unclean. Or, I mean, there's lots of things, you know, going to a funeral can make you unclean. Uh, and actually, that this portion talks about that, um, the, the issue of what happens when you come in contact with a dead body. And um, and to your point, also, uh, Juan Carlos, you're talking about the purification. And yeah, as I started to understand, he's declared the end from the beginning. And as Paul said, these things happen to them as examples to, for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come and he's declared the end from the beginning and how all that if we want to understand the end times we got to go back to these times and figure out what's going on here is that the reason he's destroying the world by fire is it's a levitical cleansing <laughs> like he has to literally do a levitical cleansing of the whole earth by fire i mean it's about the only way it's going to happen uh so uh, that's the reason for that um in this week's tour portion there's that interesting passage in Numbers 19, 14 through 16. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel with no cover fastened on it is uncleaned. Whoever in the open field touches one who has been killed by a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. This is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Um... You know, we thought about it actually when uh, when Sheila's dad was, it, we had hospice. Many people have hospice, home home hospice care. You know, they have a loved one, loved one in their house dying. And um, if if I remember right, we actually did consciously look around for anything that had an open cover. You know, like either close it or get rid of it, right? Um, because there's a reason he said that. There, there's we may not understand all the reasons for it. Like why why does just somebody dying you know, what does that have to do with open vessels? Well, what, I mean, what if there's something to this that we don't understand, right? Uh, that is detrimental to our health, you know? Uh, there's a reason for it. But there were other things here that caught my attention. Um, 
like the, the silver cord. Have you guys ever heard of the silver cord idea before? Yeah. Yes. Um, that the the Hebrews had this understanding. Well, I'll just show that scripture there. Before the silver cord is snapped, this is Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and the golden bowl is broken, and the pitcher is broken at the fountain, and the wheel broken at the cistern. What is he talking about there? The silver cord, there was this, and people could just Google silver cord. And, of course, you're going to get all kinds of interesting stuff. There will be uh, uh, stuff from the New Age and some of their take on it and everything, but, you know, chew the meat, toss the bones kind of thing. But there was this understanding that the spirit was attached to the body with this silver cord, like an umbilical cord, and that it actually hung around for three days. That you know, if a person died, the spirit was still somehow attached uh with the silver cord for three days. But on the fourth day, when the body really starts to decay, the, that's when uh, the, the cord is severed. So that's why Yeshua intentionally waited four days when Lazarus died. Like, he was a good friend of Yeshua's. I mean, he loved, he loved Lazarus. He was a really good friend. Uh, and, you know, they had seen him raise other people from the dead, and they're like, you know, Here's one of his best friends who died, and he intentionally waited four days. And then, he, and this is right before he was about to die. And so, you know, here's Lazarus, and then they're like, yeah, but Lord, you know, I mean, it's been four days. You know, for them, this was impossible. Like, they had this belief that you could still raise somebody from the dead, you know, within those three days because the cord was still attached. But once the cord had detached on the fourth day, and, and they make further reference to it, it's like, you know, he stinketh. <laughs> at this point, you know, his his body had gone, it begun to decay. And so there, this was an impossibility of impossibilities for Yeshua to raise Lazarus on the fourth day. And he's like, guys, look, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, I got this covered. Lazarus, come forth. And I believe that was specifically done to increase their faith for what they were about to see happen to Yeshua, where he also told them, look, I'm going to rise in three days. You know, I, I got, I'm coming back in three days. But because yeah, I know this is going to be hard for you, I'm going to raise this guy in four days and prove it to you, you know. Uh, uh, so there's also this other other understanding of this, uh, I think it's called an orca or a keist. And I can't remember if I talked about that here on Virtual House Church or if it was on uh, Quest for Truth with Zen. I think it was on the, on the Enoch study I'm doing with Zen that we talked about it. Anyway, just to summarize, there, you know, you always, they only counterfeit something that's real. Right? You don't have counterfeit $30 bills. You do have counterfeit $20 bills, you know, and $100 bills. You counterfeit something that's real. So you have whatever the, the real godly thing is, and then you have what the pagan cultures have, you know, uh, bastardized, changed, perverted, what have you. But you, you have, like in the pagan cultures, this idea of a keister, or an orca or a genie in a bottle, this idea of a being in a container, um, I believe that that's all pagan counterfeit of something that's real that may be alluded to in um, two passages, Job 38, 31, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? And there's this idea that comes up in Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 13, um, 20-21, For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread you have profaned me, to my people, to put to death some who should not die, and to keep alive others who should not live, by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands, magic bands, 
by which you hunt lives there as birds, and I will tear them from your arms and will let them go, even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And another passage in this uh uh, I believe it's in the same passage of Ecclesiastes 13. Depending on your translation, uh, I believe King James uses the word pillows, that you sew pillows on the arms of every, everyone of high stature. It's talking about bands being put on the arms and heads of giants. And um, actually, Steve Quayle and uh, Tom Horn have both done some really interesting study on this. Uh, would refer you to their work on it. Uh, Mespetot and Kasetot, I think, are the Hebrew words that are used. But basically, this, you know, if you look at giants and genies and things like that in, in folklore and myth and you know other legends of pagan people, you would see these entities that, entities that have like a golden uh, ring around their bicep. Uh, this whole idea that these things can possibly uh, be used to snare these people and um, put them in stasis, basically. And they talk about giants that have been discovered, supposedly, uh, in Egyptian hieroglyphs and all kinds of other Egyptian artifacts in the Grand Canyon here in the United States. And allegedly, there were giants there that had these bands on them. And Steve Quayle wrote a fictional book, but he wrote it based on uh, a nonfiction uh, called The Long Walkers. And in that, the, you know, in the fictional narrative that he created based on the truth, uh, he had these archaeologists, like, they find these giants, and they're, they're, like, frozen in stasis, and they take off these bands, and then they start to come back to life again. So, you know, I don't know what to make of all that. I just, I'm putting it out there for you to consider something interesting to think about, but it may have some interesting tie-ins to this study. Like, you got to make sure you cover uh, open, you know, um, jars and whatnot if you've got somebody in your house or in your tent or what have you that's uh, dying. So... And, and just that you become unclean also. Now, this is something else we should think about. How many, especially Catholic churches, like so many Catholic churches will build their church either right next to a graveyard or over a graveyard. And they'll put like dead bodies, they'll put the altar, many times the altar of the church itself will be over the crypt of a saint, you know, quote unquote, saint, or underneath the threshold of the building. Like they violated like everything in the Torah <laughs> by doing that, by creating these churches that are literally right over dead bones. So you, you, every time you walk in, you're defiling yourself, you know, at least according to this passage uh, in the book of Numbers. You guys had any thoughts or insights uh, on any of that? Yeah, not, I mean, not just uh, Catholic churches. Protestant churches, that's a very common yeah. thing. Have the graveyard right out back or right, right, <laughs> right there. And, right next and, door. Uh, man, it's just... Uh, I'm try. I can't think of it, but there's a, a verse study that I've done specifically around the graveyards being with the churches. Um, I, it, it tied to Ezekiel, but um, just a weird, interesting thing that we've lost this understanding of what being unclean is, and then we've made our places of worship the places we keep our dead bodies. Therefore, anybody who goes to worship, they're worshiping in an unclean, you know, unclean way. And you know, I, I don't necessarily have any thoughts either way on churches today and the, the graves but it is we've totally forgot that concept and uh and we just started started it's almost like they it's it's like a is your graveyard if your is your church's graveyard bigger than theirs who's more <laughs> successful as a as a ministry you know who who's willing to get buried in your church you know these are all the people throughout the years that have been loyalists to our congregation 
And that's usually why people are buried in a church's graveyard. Um, and so it's almost it kind of makes me think of like competing churches. You know, is your graveyard as big as ours? Because we had a lot of people that have been involved over the years. So um, not I'm not trying to make light. It's just it makes me it's, it's just interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and yeah, I, I know I don't have that much comments on that, there, Rob. But you know, this is connecting. I think to to, to what we were discussing before. The, everything needs to be purified. The entire creation needs to be purified. And actually, to to that point, I, I have three things that I, I found really interesting that I would like to share. Sure. So, so you were mentioning about the verse fourteen that uh, when a man dies in a tent. And and if we if we and um, if we remember it, uh, one day for Yahuwah is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. If we if we do the the, the parallel of uh, what's happened with the entire creation, when was the first man dying? It was during the first day, the first millennium, and it's going to happen that the, in seven days we are going to have the full purification of the entire creation. So, so basically, we understand one day being a thousand year, and the, the earth, this amazing creation, was totally defiled by death of a man. Mm-hmm. And now we will go through entire purification. Oh. Now, I found that mm-hmm. this is really interesting because it's everything connected to the same thing that we are reading here. Um, interesting. The, the second thing, and, and this is more related to tradition, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's important, Jewish tradition. You know, the, when, when you start looking looking up for the, when the, the red heifer, heifer the sacrifice was uh, performed, you know, Jewish tradition says that this was done in the Mount of Olives. Uh, and actually, when you read this information, they said that they had a path for the Kohenim going through the Mount of the Temple to the Mount of Olives. And actually, if you go to Jerusalem and, uh, in these days, there is, um, there is a path that they, they believe, and they actually they have a, some, some, some paper on, the, on a wall saying path of the Kohanim, that they believe that was the path of the Kohanim from the Mount of Olives to the Mount, uh, Mount of the Temple. And, and why this is so important? Because uh, we know that uh, there are at least three different places that people believe where the cruci- uh, crucifixion happened. One is the the church of the the crucifixion that uh, I don't believe that is the place. There is a second place that's the garden tomb. Uh, this is very very nice, and I, it could be one of the possibility. But there is a third possibility that is the Mount of Olives because the, there is a big graveyard uh, in that place nowadays, and actually there is a very ancient graveyard coming from the times of uh, Yahushua and even older that it was uh, exactly on the Mount of Olives. So, so if, if we see this parallelism and, 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 and this Jewish tradition is truth, that the red heifer was sacrificed in the Mount of Olives, this is so amazing because somehow, if this is really was the place of the crucifixion, we see a lot of foreshadows because uh, when the spear was in the side of Yahushua, we know that the uh, blood and water came out of, uh, of his body. And we see in the whole process of the red heifer, that the the the, the kohen needed needed to sprinkle uh, sprinkle the the blood toward the temple seven times. So so we see somehow a parallelism between what happened 
with the Kohen and also what happened with the Yahushua. And uh, and also if the, the, the red heifer itself was sacrificing the Mount of Olives and Yahushua being that sacrifice, you know, everything is connected that most probably the Mount of Olives was the, the, the place of the of the crucifixion. And, and it's so amazing because Gethsemane is there. He was to, uh, taken up to heaven from the Mount of Olives and it is written that in the same place will come back he will come back so so if everything happened in that in that place and connected to 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 this what i'm saying i, I find it really really amazing mm-hmm. yeah uh somebody pointed out that in my commentary there and i, I actually just fixed it but uh i had ecclesiastes it was, it's ezekiel 13 for those of you who are interested in what i was there i just uh fixed it on the website it's ezekiel not ecclesiastes this i believe is ecclesiastes up there but um so uh, one of the other questions that came up in the chat room there is what about hospitals? You know, a lot of people dying there. Of course, we have home hospice where somebody dies in your home, and we have a situation where people die in hospitals all the time. Uh, and, you know, all kinds of different environments where people die. Do you think that this is still uh, something that's still in effect today, that we become unclean? And if so, um, how does that affect us? My, this is just, this is not thus saith the Lord. This is thus thinketh Rob, and I reserve the right to be 100% wrong. I could be totally wrong in this. But you know, when I see some of these uh, various laws and regulations, again, for me, it seems to me that this is Yahuwah putting things in place specifically for hygiene, that he's concerned that the people stay healthy and that, you know, uh, he gives various requirements so people will stay healthy and not acquire various sicknesses and diseases as a result of these different things that as Jake pointed out it's not sin it's just things that make you unclean you're not clean you're you're dirty you know in some way and so you know being that these people didn't have you know showers and things that we all have access to uh, maybe again I could be wrong Maybe these things were there put in place because of the environment that they're in and the situation that they had to deal with. Um, For us, if somebody dies in our living room or in the hospital and we're exposed to that, uh, it seems to me I can go home and take a shower um, and perhaps be okay. I don't know. Is there something more to it other than physical? Is there a spiritual side of it? If there's a spiritual side of it, then I would say that I'm still just as unclean. The other thing is I don't have Yahuwah physically manifesting in the camp like they had, you know, and, and that Jake, you were pointing out that this is, these are things that we have to be in this context had to be ritualistically cleansed in order to walk into the presence of a holy God that was physically among them in the camp. You know, um, now I believe that we have the Holy spirit living inside of us. Um, but he is his physical fullness and his full presence is not there like it was in the in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So here you have the Israelites encamped around a tabernacle within which the physical presence of God was there. So I think that many of these laws, rules, and regulations are applicable because of that. Because of well, because of two things: because of physical hygiene uh, for these people to stay healthy in the wilderness, and because of their physical proximity to the physical presence of Yahuwah in the camp. The hygiene's not really so much of an issue for us because we have modern amenities and things we can clean ourselves up with, and we don't have Yahuwah's physical president uh, presence somewhere locally nearby 
that would prohibit us from coming to his presence. We have now the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness, and we can therefore come boldly before the throne of grace because, in effect, we're wearing a, this is going to sound kind of sick, but kind of a blood suit, if you will, uh, of Yeshua's blood. And when um, I got a good visual of this one time when I was working in theater, uh, we were... Uh, painting props and rigging lights and all kinds of stuff on the stage to get ready for a big show that we were doing. And uh, there was a, a prop that was painted red that was on the floor of the stage. And I was up on a ladder working on putting uh, lighting gels into the light fixtures that were up there. And lighting gels are just these little colored pieces of plastic that you slide into a little fixture that goes in front of the light to change the light to whatever color you want it. And um, I had a red lighting gel that I was putting into a, the, the lighting fixture. And as I put that red lighting gel through the fixture and I looked down at the red prop that was on the floor next to a white prop, it appeared the same color. The red prop appeared to be white. Why? Because the color of the red gel cancels out the color of the red prop. So I was like, I pull it, there's a red prop, put it back on. It's white, red, white, white. I'm like, wow. Like I'm looking at that on the ladder and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is, though my sins be as scarlet, they are made white as snow. Why? Because Father looks through the lens, if you will, of Yeshua's red blood and sees my red sin, and it's white. You know, uh, so it is my opinion that based on these things, laws like this may not necessarily apply to us. What are your thoughts on that? You know, are, 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 do we have to go through some kind of ritual if we're in the presence of a dead body, either at a hotel or in our home if somebody dies of hospice or anything you know, of that, that nature? I think it's uh, it's kind of related to that physical um, manifestation of the tabernacle. And, of course, that's something we're looking forward to in a future sense. Um, and that's when currently maybe we, we're not so worried about defiling his tabernacle because we're not able to go to his tabernacle. Um, but in the future, that there, there is going to be, you know, a new temple that comes down from heaven, you know, the new Jerusalem. And, uh, and I think in that context, maybe millennial reign time period or whatever, you know, some of these things are going to be very important. They're going to come back. Right. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. so right now we're, we can learn about them. We can benefit even some from the, the physical, cleanliness aspect some some people in the chat constantly were pointed out that when you burn a red heifer and all the fat and and even the antimicrobial properties of hyssop and 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 all that stuff when you burn it down it makes soap so oh, people were uh, mentioning that uh, in the comments and, and i think that's, that's really interesting point. is like uh it <laughs> this thing that represents cleaning sin and taking away sin <laughs> turns into soap when I, you go through the process so <laughs> Um, I wow. thought that was interesting, but yeah, yeah that, that was just my thought. And in a future sense, these things are definitely going to be very important. But right now, you know, we can only do what we can what we can do. That is a great insight that it does become. Uh, it turns into soap. Yeah, good point. And yeah, you're right. I mean, in the millennial context, the Levitical and and actually, uh, I think it was in. Yeah, it's in the uh, um, half Torah. Ezekiel forty four is. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, maybe I'm just. Well, <laughs> I, I believe it's in uh, in the Isaiah passage, if I'm not mistaken, that talks about that he's going to. Of course, this is the Isaiah 66:8, right? Well, you know, is this talking about 1948? No, because <laughs> uh, uh, it says. Actually, in Zechariah, there's something. 
I think it's here too, though. In Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, you, you have something that is really interesting. In that day, a fountain shall be opened in the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Yeah. Uh, so well, it's talking about the living waters. Yeah. Uh, the point I was trying to make, though, is in verse 21 of Isaiah 66. Uh, and I will also take of them. This is in a millennial reign, restored Israel context. Um, I will take of them for priests and for Levites, saith Yahuwah. So he's the one that's going to, uh, and other passages, I think, in Jeremiah and other places talk about him. Yeah, Ezekiel 44 is that the one. Choose, he chooses new Levites. New and they are the ones that don't hide their eyes from the Sabbaths and from the clean. Actually, can, can I just read it? <laughs> yeah, go for it. All right, let me, let me pull this up. Uh, okay, um... All right, so Ezekiel 44, and this is about the priesthood being restored. Let me uh, scroll down here and uh, okay, so right here, Ezekiel 44. Um. Apologize, guys. I'm just trying to find the. Uh... You could probably just do a keyword search for a Levite and look at yeah. the rest. I think you know, but the point is, he. You know, there are people who are trying to say that they are Levites today, and you know, we hear every year somebody's got something to do with a red heifer. You know, supposedly, oh, we found a red heifer without spot or blemish. Uh, interestingly enough, a fair amount of them have been coming from Texas. Um, but then eventually they end up finding, you know, a, a hair or finding something that disqualifies it from, from being a red heifer. But I would say the other problem, though, is that my understanding of it is that the ashes of the red heifer had to be, had to also trace back to this original red heifer. That there was a, like a remnant or something, uh, if memory serves. I could be wrong if you guys can correct me on that, if you know. Um, but I thought that the ashes of the red heifer had to have some kind of connection back to the original red heifer that was sacrificed. And so even if they come up with a new red heifer right now, it would be in violation because it wouldn't have the connection to the original red heifer and it wouldn't be a Levite appointed by Yahuwah himself, uh, you know, in the uh, end times context. Yeah, you know, my take to, to the point you mentioned there before, Rob, is I think uh, I totally agree that in, in the coming kingdom, the Millennium Kingdom, everything is going to be restored. Even all of this, that's why I was sharing the, 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 what is written in the book of Zechariah. Uh, because uh, the river that is going to be used for the, for, for the as living waters is going to come, come out from the temple. So, so all of this is going to be restored as, as we see in the scriptures. I think nowadays uh, we, have a, we have the time in order to, to learn all these things. And uh, you know, we have been discussing this that uh, Yahushua, his sacrifice is, is like the red heifer. So, so through him, we get the, the cleansing. And through the Ruach HaKodesh being the living water, we have the two components in order to, to have the cleansing for, for any defilement. So, you know, I think it's up to, up, up to us to, to, to decide we want to apply this in ourselves uh, in, in these days in case we get in contact to, to a dead body. 
Uh, we want to go through through this uh, seven days purification, understanding that the, the ashes and the living water is through Yahushua and the Ruach HaKodesh in prayers. So I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting application for us, a spiritual application for us uh, nowadays. And, uh, and actually, let me share with you an experience that I, I faced a few years ago. You know, I went through a long period of fasting. Uh, it was uh, one of the, my longest period of fasting I, 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 I've ever, ever done. And at the end of the, the period of fasting, uh, I had to go through a funeral. So, so I had to go to, to a cemetery and so on. Uh, you know what what happened to me after this uh, period of fasting and go through the cemetery and the next day I had so uh, so hard a, a burden on me I felt so sad uh, and and I did I didn't understand what happened and then you know when you go through a, a long period of fasting it's some, somehow a purification process as well so so I immediately connected to the fact that I was going to the cemetery after a long period of purification, that basically uh, I, I entered into contact with uh, what is written in this portion. So, so I went through a purification the, the, this, the, this time, uh, the seven days purification, and you know, I started to feel much better. So, you know, it's up to us. I think at this time that we're in the wilderness of the people, uh, we, we, can, we can take the word of Yahuwah to apply ourselves, to learn about this, uh, this word, how to apply in our today day-to-day uh, lives. Uh, because at the end, when we enter to the kingdom, this is going to be uh, the constitution, as you said. Mm-hmm. So it's the way we will need to live in the land. Now is the time for, for us to learn. So, so that's my take on, on, on this regard. I uh, found that passage. Um, I wanted to start and show you guys first, uh, those watching... Ezekiel 22, which uh, is a future prophecy about priests violating his law, and and uh, I'm going to read that. Um, there's a conspiracy. This is Ezekiel 22, 25. There's a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure of precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. And this is what we're seeing today, unfortunately, in you know some denominations, you know people. Uh, that are um, hiding uh, some of the truths of the scripture. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have made, put no difference between the holy and the profane, neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. This is stuff we're talking about today, guys. Mm-hmm. And I've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. And, uh, and in a future uh, context of a, a priesthood that he's actually happy with, we see in Ezekiel 44 um, that... These priests that he's actually pleased with after, you know, like the similar uh, passion like Zadok and the priesthood that was promised to him because he, you know, had a heart for the Lord. And 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 uh, Ezekiel 44, it says, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And uh, in controversy, they shall stand in judgment, and they shall judge in according to my statutes, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes and all mine assemblies, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. You know, this is a, a direct contrast between Ezekiel 22, the people who are violating his law, profaned his holy things, no difference between the holy and the profane, no difference between the unclean and the clean, and they've hid their eyes from his Sabbaths. And then the priests, once again, that he's pleased with, are doing that very opposite. They're showing the difference between the clean and the unclean. They're they're hallowing his Sabbaths. And uh, I just wanted to point out that dichotomy in Ezekiel because it was right along what we were talking about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good stuff. Awesome. Uh, we got about six minutes left in the broadcast here. Um, you know, I think we covered the giant thing probably pretty well last week. Um, and Agabashan, I mean, this is the passage where they go up against Agabashan. And in the, um, let me see if I can bring that up here. Um, just to put into perspective, if you go to Virtual House Church Week 39 page, uh, I, I got sort of a, a scale for Aga Bashan there. So this would be a, a six-foot-tall person standing next to a 15- to 18-footer, which you know most scholars place Aga Bashan somewhere in that uh, ballpark uh, based on the size of his bedstead. Uh, so, you know, if you take a proportionately, not just tall, but mass, proportionately massive man, scale them up, you know, this is what they're going up against with Agabashan. And, and Sihon must have been a pretty impressive character, too, because they're like, don't worry, you know, remember what you did to Sihon? You know, you're going to do the same thing here. Uh, so, and we see that in Amos that God destroyed the Amorites. So, uh, I believe that he destroyed the biggest of the biggest and the baddest of the baddest, but he still left some for them to handle. So, you know, the ones that Yahuwah took out, uh, Yeshua took out, were probably <laughs> very scary, but still, considering what these guys had to go up against, that's quite impressive <laughs> as, as well. So we covered that at you know quite a bit of length in, in last week's study. So any parting thoughts in the last uh, five minutes or so on this portion, the New Testament, or prophets' portions that, uh, for this week's study? I, uh, I wanted to tack one thing onto what you were just talking about with the giants, um, something that I had realized just recently um, in, his, in Exodus 23:28. He says that he sends hornets uh, uh, before them to drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite. And I'm wondering huh. how, you know, we're, you know, did he send a bunch of bees and hornets and <laughs> they all blew up like, you know, balloons because they're all allergic to these bites and stuff. And they're running from these swarms. And uh, and uh, that's one of the, the really explicit ways that he says that he drove these giant tribes out. And it's funny that he uses these tiny little hornets and bugs to defeat these giant giants, you know. And um, well, yeah, because if you think of that, I mean, you know, if we did a study on this a while back too, wondering if hornets were actually what we consider hornets or not. But let's say it is. If if we are talking about hornets, I mean, you know, hornets, you know, about like that, you know, to us, that would be even smaller to a giant, right? (laughs) You know, if a hornet is like that big to you know me, I'm about six feet tall. You know how tiny is that to a giant, and how many hornets would you need to get the giants all flipped out that they would drive them, <laughs> drive them away? I mean, would they be like you know lice to them or something? You know, stinging lice or you know I don't know, but apparently it was enough to dri- or like scabies even, man. I, you know, something like that will jack you up. As you know, for us, if you look at scabies as microscopic little things that could get into your skin and really mess with you, so who knows? Any any thoughts you yeah. had on any of this, Juan, uh, uh, excuse me, Juan Carlos, before we uh, close out here? No, no, no. I think we, we, we have shared a lot of things. I just want to, to point it out that, you know, in this Torah portion, it doesn't, doesn't specify that the Gulf of Bashan was a, a, an Amorite. But yeah. if you read in context with the, the, the Deuteronomy, yes. you can find out these two kings are from, from Amorites. Yeah. So it's important in connection that the... Those, uh, those two kings are part of the seven nations that Israel needed to destroy. I think it's important just to, to point it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, I don't have anything else. Jake, any parting thoughts? That'll be all. That'll be it. All right. 
another fantastic virtual house church. Thank you guys so much for joining me here today. It's always a pleasure to, to listen to you guys and to hear your insights, man. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Are you guys good for next week? I will not be able to be here next week, uh, but uh, should be able to resume after that. Okay. Juan, are you available next week? So far, I'm, so far I'm good. So most probably I will be here. All right. So far, so good. So maybe it's just uh, you and me, Juan. We'll see if uh, if uh, uh, Kevin Roberts can join us. And uh, if not, it'll be just the two of us. Uh, anyway, thank you guys. And thank you, everybody uh, in the chat room. Thank you, Super Chats. Thank you, Mods. Thank you, guys, everybody, for joining us here for the Virtual House Church. Shabbat Shalom. Have a great day.